Welcome to The Matt Haycock Show, a podcast about business, money and life. Matt has been making money and making mistakes for over 20 years. And in this podcast, he shares his thoughts and stories so you can improve your business, finances and life whilst hopefully avoiding the mistakes he and others have made along the way. Listen in and level up. If our mistakes teach us so much, why do we live in the perpetual fear of making a mistake? Mm. Right? Because I, I, I don't know about you, but I learned far more about the things from the things that went wrong in my career than I did when things just went right. Hey guys, it's Matt Haycox here, and welcome to another episode of the Matt Haycox Show. And today it's our it's our segment Success in the Spotlight, where I get to pick the brains of fantastic entrepreneurs and characters and learn everything I can learn from them and hopefully share it with you guys too. And today's guest has got a hell of a career to date, starting in journalism as a columnist for the Daily and the Sunday Mirror. She became the youngest and first female editor of Smash Hits magazine in 1995. From 1997, she started a career in, uh, I guess, in presenting and in broadcasting. Credits include X Factor, Pop Idol, Top of the Pops, a Brits, a Royal Variety performance. So in addition to journalism and media work, she's a qualified therapist, a successful entrepreneur and a fellow podcaster. So welcome to the show, Kate Thornton. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm exhausted listening to that. I was going to say, did I do all right? I you feel, did I feel brilliantly. Like, I feel like I need to take a breath. But <laughs> I just forget about all the stuff I've done. So when somebody puts it to you like that, you go, oh, I need to lie down. <laughs> well, 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 I guess you, not only have you done so much, you've done so much in a, a relatively short space of time you know, for, for, for that amount of things. And you started so young. Mm. Uh, I think starting young helps. Uh, I mean, did you... I was going to say, did you intend to start young? But I guess what I mean is, you know, as, as, a, as a, a, a youngster, were you feeling uh, you know, career-hungry, entrepreneurial? Yeah. Always career-hungry. Knew from a really quite early age that I wanted to be a writer, a journalist. It was the only thing I was good at at school as well. I think there's this massive pressure on our kids now. We've both got children who are in secondary school where they're made to feel like they've got to be good at everything, which is such a horrible pressure to put on a kid because nobody's good at everything. It's actually in so many ways about finding your thing that you are good at and then really honing that, something that gets you out of bed every morning with a spring in your step. That You know, I... All the stuff you've just listed off there, I've never felt, even though I've worked hard, it's never felt like work because I've loved it. You know, I really love my job, still love my job, still learning in my role now. Um, and I remain as hungry as probably the day that I got my first paid gig. And I guess it's interesting that you say, you know, that as kids, you know, we can't be good at everything and, you know, we make, make reference to our own kids. But I mean, that's quite a, well, I guess it's quite a modern way, well, I say it's a modern way of thinking. It's still probably in, in the minority of, of people, I mean, parents who would happily say, you know, my my kid excels in these, but, you know, but I'm not going to push them on these things because, you know, they, they need to kind of find their passion and find their focus. But how were your parents with you? I mean, did, did they support your dream? Oh, God, yeah, they were amazing. And I, I mean, th there was the only place I ever felt there was a ceiling on my ambitions was at school, um, which is so wrong. And I, I, I really hope that that is less and less prevalent today. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it is based on my son's experiences in education. Um, they were amazing. Like my dad and, and mum used to say, someone's got to walk on the moon. Why shouldn't it be you? Someone's got to run this country. Why couldn't it be you? And 
I was just raised with that. So I never, it never occurred to me that I couldn't be something that I wanted to be what, what, until what, I tried to be it. And then, <laughs> and then you have lots of people going, sorry. And uh, were they successful and entrepreneurial people themselves? Or? No, my mum was a dinner lady at our school who um, then worked in Sainsbury's and then ended up working in um, as an office manager for a scaffolding film locally. My dad worked nights making landing parks for aeroplanes in a factory. Uh, so no, but I think my dad, one thing that they both taught me was try and do something you love. Don't do this. You know, I mean, they love their life and they live, they're happily retired now. And they, I, I don't know, I don't know that they have huge regrets about their working life, but my mum was of a generation where women didn't have careers. They had jobs. I am that first breed of woman that probably at my age group, I'm 47 now that were, you know, I didn't go to university because I couldn't afford it. Um, but, you know, women of my age were university educated and they were raised to believe that there was a possibility of being more than a, a nurse, not a doctor or a teacher. You know, those were women's jobs. And my my generation, we were raised to think, you know, I, I had a prime minister who was a woman growing up. Um, we were raised to believe that we could go out and have careers. And I remember telling my careers advice officer that I wanted to be a journalist at school. And she... Oh, the, the, the contempt and pity that poured out of her as I uttered this ambitious line. But, you know, she said, oh, have you thought about a typing pool? I mean, can you imagine things like that don't even exist anymore? I said, no, I haven't. Have you, Funnily have you, enough. Have you, have, have, you, have you considered that I actually might be able to do this? My dad was furious. I went home and I told him he stormed up the school. Do not allow that to happen to these kids. They've got to dream big. And I had this one teacher that I'm still in touch with to this day he was my my English teacher and my drama teacher and he just thought I was he thought I had potential and um and he really encouraged me to go and 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 discover the world and my ambition and see where it could take me and he told me that he believed that I could be something more than a you know a, a, a girl in a typing pool and so I think that combination of that one teacher that saw something and brilliantly progressive parents that just were ambitious for my ambition and just went go for it you know what's the worst the, you know when I finally got into journalism school and I was turned down by every journalism course in the country bar the one I went to so I was feeling desperate at that point I thought I'm not even going to get a chance to qualify and I believe that journalists you know I do believe as a journalist you should study and you should it, it's a skill it's a profession um, so it's not just something that you know necessarily I mean blogging now is 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 a, something that you can do everyone's a publisher and you can do it as a self-starter but back then that wasn't available to us so I had to get an education I had to get a qualification it was so so important to me and my mum and dad both said what's the worst that can happen? You, you go and you try and it doesn't work out. Just come home. We're still here. Your bedroom's still here. You know, and actually that's something I really, really feed back to my son now. It's like I deliberately didn't use the word fail because I hate that as a, it's such a negative word because if it hadn't have worked out, I still would have learned a load from that experience. And those those learnings are valuable. And I think that's, that we progress through life, certainly in an age of cancel culture, where we are so terrified of making mistakes that we forget the value of them. And that, uh, you know, if our mistakes teach us so much, why do we live in the perpetual fear of making a mistake? Mm. Right. Because I, I, I don't know about you, but I learned far more about the things from the things that went wrong in my career 
than I did when things just went right. Well, I, I mean, I always say two things. You know, one, which is I only learn when things go wrong, or I think anyone only learns when things go wrong because, you know, I guess in simple terms, when things go right, they've just gone right. I mean, you kind of almost don't know why they've gone right because you don't get to, you you get, don't analyze, don't get to analyze it in the same it. way. Yeah, exactly. you don't study why did, why did that plane fall out of the sky? You know, you know, you would sit, if a plane fell out of the sky, you'd go, oh my God, how did that happen? But exactly, otherwise but if, we just sit there, buckle up, go, oh, chicken or beef. Exactly. And we don't question how the plane stays in the air. <laughs> you know, the same thing applies to I mean, our endeavours in I mean, life, literally I literally do everything, and and you know my, my you know my main day to day job, if you like, is I, I, I'm a, I'm a lender, uh, and I always say again, you know, we only learn how to lend money by by losing money, uh, because again, you know, you lend it, someone pays you back, well, they've paid you back. You can you could say it's because they had the right accounts and they had the right bank statements and things, but you don't really you know you don't really know that. But it's only the ones where they go wrong, and you know, and the and the property wasn't worth what it was supposed to be worth, or or, or the or the bank statements were fraudulent, yeah. or or, or they were you know whatever it was and and it's only you know it's, it's only when you um you make the mistakes that you learn i always say in lending you learn by losing and i've and i've lost a lot <laughs> i've lost a lot. A lot so i've learned a lot and it's, it's very very much the same that you know the more the more mistakes you make uh the, you know, the more learnings you have and i guess for me it's only really a failure when you make that same mistake twice correct yeah, and or you don't extract a lesson from it. Exactly. And and I think I would, in the same way that, you know, I would like beauty houses to stop selling me anti-aging products, you can't be anti-something that is inevitable. Why can't it be pro-aging? And I think that language changes. prolonging. But, but, well, no, just pro, just <laughs> pro-aging. Because with age comes wisdom. Being old is a blessing, Especially as we're living through a pandemic, just being is a blessing. Being here is a blessing. Um, so I, I don't like to be anti the inevitable, and and the, the same with 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 things going wrong and failing. Failures are massively valuable, and I really is something I really want to teach my son. Is like, don't be scared of what if it goes wrong. Just be hungry for what if it yeah. goes right. And if it goes wrong. That's cool too. Like otherwise, you end up with a bunch. We we will be a nation of safe. Yeah, make, play ma safe. So, make sure you've tried. And actually, the most interesting people are, are the ones that have gone out there and just given it a go. And it's only our ego and vanity that often prevents us being brave. And I mean, I'm just too old to be vain now. It's it's that those days are gone. But and I've had some very public lessons that I've had to learn the hard way. And at, at times I thought I would, you know, would be the, the breaking of me. But actually, no, they, they've probably been a large part of the making of me. Do you think, do you think as you became more well-known that, that you uh, maybe didn't take as many risks as you would have done before? Or, or have, you always been, have you always been happy to kind of blindly, blindly ignore no, other people's perceptions? Nothing was blind. Everything was overly probably analysed and considered because that's the journalist in me, I suppose is I research everything. I think becoming well-known later in life was a blessing. Um, and by that time, I'd already had an entire career working behind the scenes, predominantly with young people that became very, very well-known very quickly. And I saw what that did. And I also saw the smoke and mirrors because I was the smoke and mirrors. You know, you put somebody on the cover of a magazine, they didn't look like that in the studio, but they did by the time, you know, our wizards had been to work correcting, airbrushing, propping, you know, varnishing the effect. I knew the reality versus the um, the end product, I suppose. So I went into being a public person uh, really with my eyes wide open. 
and knowing the ups and the downs of it and that it doesn't last very long. And I made a very, very conscious decision because I really didn't want to be a TV presenter. Um, there was an amazing woman, a, a female producer that literally refused to take the, the word no as an answer from me about presenting a show that she was working on. And she, in the end, she convinced me to do it. It was just as I'd finished my, my time at Smash Hits. She convinced me to do it by presenting it as a business case. And she said, right, okay, so you've got no interest in being a presenter. I was like, absolutely none. I'm an editor. And she was like, okay, and you're going to be an editor forever, are you? I was like, well, I don't know, but I, you know, this is my dream job. I'm 21 years old. I'm editing my favorite magazine. Nothing's going to budge me out of this chair. She's like, you might want to think about this. This industry is in decline. It's been in decline for however many years. There's a digital revolution around the corner. At the moment, we have five channels in the UK. Digital TV is coming. There is going to be exponential growth in this, this medium. And you're going to be unqualified to work in it. Where's that going to leave you in 10 years time? Editing what? She's like, if you want to be smart, you'll educate yourself about all aspects of television and, and decide where your journalistic role sits. Are you a producer? Are you a director? Are you a presenter? What if I give you a job on this show, which enables you to do a little bit of all of that? You do it for 13 weeks. Think of it as like a massive kibbutz, I suppose, <laughs> and see at the end of it if, if this is for you. And don't worry, no one's going to see this show. It's on a, on a Sunday lunchtime. It was a current affairs show called um, Straight Up. It's on against the EastEnders Omnibus, which at the time was huge on a Sunday. So no one's going to watch it. So your ego doesn't even have to come into this. What do you say? And I'd already made the decision to leave Smash Hits, but I had signed on to be a writer with the Sunday Times, which was epic for me as a writer. Just really so thrilled about that. And also as a contributing editor for Marie Claire, which is was my favourite female glossy magazine. So I thought, actually, what have I got to lose? I can do this and do that. And there was a lesson in that as well. You don't have to be one thing. You can be two things. And we have to really be open to that in this country. We make everybody tr stay in their lane. And when you go to someone like the States, everyone travels multiple lanes and nobody's chastised for it. They're celebrated. So, you know, you can do more than one thing. And I decided, you know, I think it was 97 that I went into telly. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try this. I'll just try it. And I loved it. I loved it. And, and I never wanted to go back after that. But that didn't mean I was ready to hang up my pen. I still carried on writing. I did two things. And it used to confuse people. So what are you? Are you a presenter or a journalist? It's like, hey, how about I'm both? Let's just rewind a bit, J just, I guess, to getting that first job. Um, and, and I guess I just want to, I want to understand how you broke into, into journalism. Obviously, you, you, you got into the, uh, into the journalist school course that you, what you wanted to do. But how, how did you get your first job? And then well, even just getting into the journalism school required great creativity on my part because I wasn't, listen, I was not academic at school. I was good at two things, English and drama. That's it. And other than that, I just hovered around the seas. You know, I was setting no, I was not, not setting anything alight, really, apart from one teacher and my very, very loving parents. Um, but I knew I wanted to be a writer. So I, I applied to do work experience on my local newspaper. So I, I, I'm from a family of workers. I had my first job at 12. I was teaching kids ballroom dancing. I worked in a hairdresser's washing hair for my auntie. I, you know, I worked behind every counter con conceivably known to man in cafes, bakeries, whatever. So I had a work ethic. And then I got, I applied to do work experience on the local paper. And I did that, which was great. But then they, they had a vacancy part-time 
um, for somebody to go in and do the payroll for the paper boys and girls. So it was on the local free sheet. So, you know, the free newspapers you get through your doors. So I used to do, I used to go in once or twice a week and I would bag up their, their pay. It was always in coins with maybe a fiver if they were lucky in a little brown envelope. And then they'd come in to get their paycheck. But that gave me a paycheck from a local newspaper. So when I applied to all of these journalism courses, I could say, I'm already working on my local newspaper. No, I wasn't. I was, I was yeah. working in payroll. Um, and I'd written two pieces that had my name on. And then I just cut a load of other pieces out of the newspaper that had no bylines. And I sent that off as a body of work. And that got me the interviews to, to, to get onto the course that I eventually qualified to, to, to join. That was in London at the London College of Printing. Part of the requirement of that course was you had to get two work placements for two weeks at, 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 at a time. And it was up to you to knock down every door that you could possibly get. They weren't going to give you the work experience. You had to go out and get it. And I wrote to everyone. I mean, I remember sitting at this electric typewriter that I had, just typing furiously, anyone, anyone, anyone. And I got one one uh, work experience for two weeks on a women's magazine, which came to nothing. You know, um, I put my hand up to do as much as I could there, but... It was literally like, could you just get us a coffee? And then I went to work at the Sunday Mirror magazine and I had a female editor called Kate Hadley. And she was fantastically eccentric, but really open to, to me. And I just said to her, look, I, you know, I'm here to do and learn as much as possible. Um, you know, if you want me in at 8am, I'm here. If you want me here till 10pm, I'm here. Just please put me to work. And I just kept putting my hands up the whole time, volunteering, volunteering. And at the end of the two weeks, she called me over and said, you did great. I was like, oh, thank you. I said, look, I'm, if I don't get a job at the end of this course, I have to move home because I have no way of supporting myself in London. I'd already taken on temping jobs to support my studies. So I was working as a receptionist in a sexually transmitted disease clinic as a temp in Waterloo for a whacking eight quid an hour, which was like, whoa, I was, you know, rolling in it. And I fixed vending machines for Shell Oil as a temp. And I would be in charge of broken vending machines. So I said to her, look, I'm doing all this work. I'm, I'm you know, I'm literally dealing with chlamydia every day in a bid to keep my fees You've got to be paid. Careful saying that. I was yeah, literally <laughs> um, crying. And I think she just took pity on me. Or just, you know, I just laid it on, really. And it wasn't laying it on. It was the honest truth. And she said, you did good. She said, there's a job here for you when you finish your exams. I was like, oh, you're kidding. Thank you so much. Really? She said, it's £10,500 a year. Uh, your duties will be this. But, you know, you can start when you finish your exams. And literally, I finished my exams at 1.30. And by 2.30, I changed in the toilet at college, put some hideous power suit on that I got from my mum's Freeman's catalogue, swanked up to Fleet Street, knocked on her door and said, I'm here. Where do you want me? And that was the beginning of my working life. And and it was 21 when you became uh, Smash Hits editor. Yeah, so I was 20 then. I uh, stayed a year in Fleet Street and then I moved on to the job at Smash Hits. But you, but you effectively what only started working, I don't mean working properly, but your first proper job in journalism was at 20. Yeah. So, so how, I mean... How, Obviously, work ethic and and you know and put, putting your hand up and ready to turn your hand to anything have have, have been I guess key uh, strategies of yours and something that you know even talking to you off camera uh, is, is is still featured.
features he heavily in your life. Um, but I mean, it's still, how the hell do you go in one year from your first proper paid job to to editor of you know both your favourite and the the biggest music magazine at the time? I mean, there's got to be some more magic magic sprinkles to it than that. Well, in that year that I was at the what, year eighteen months that I was at the Mirror, um, they had a problem in terms of their readership it was an old readership and it was dying as a readership and their children the, the, the readers that they'd had you know you know that had the paper delivered every day back in the days when people read newspapers physical newspapers um their children weren't inheriting that that buying habit of consuming that title so they needed to win over younger view uh, younger uh, younger readers so i was you know, it was like an all hands meeting, I suppose, where this, this, this was put to the newsroom. This is our problem. This is what we're facing. I was the only person on staff there under 30. And I just went to the editor and said, listen, I don't know if it'll help, but you don't have to pay me anymore. How about I write a youth column every week, which covers, you know, an interview with a pop star or a young actor, some competitions, a record review, um, just so that there is something in the paper for young people to read. And I think I had them at, you don't have to pay me. <laughs> um, but that enabled me um, within six months of getting out of college to, to, to say that I was a columnist in, in a national newspaper. And the editor of that title was then promoted to the Daily Mirror and he took me with him and took me over to the Daily Mirror. And suddenly, I had five days a week, I had a page in a national newspaper every single day with my picture at the top of it. And that 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 was enough to intrigue at least the publishers of smash hits to see me for that job when it became available i knew the editor who was 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 moving on to another title he tipped me off that he was leaving that there were no obvious internal candidates so what did i have to lose by applying plus i'd never been for a job interview so i thought it would just be good experience um i knew that that fleet street wasn't probably the right home for me i didn't have that tabloid kill killer instinct i didn't like that kind of news gathering um the idea of being the editor of smash hits just was joyous to me i'd been raised on it was it as was it as fun to do it as it as it probably looks i mean i, I guess that was hard work you know don't get me wrong when you go in one one, one lesson i learned straight away was being the editor you don't write a word apart from the cover lines you spend more time talking to advertisers and HR than you do f to your editorial team, you know, to get out of... A, a Did that disappoint? Disappoint would be the wrong word, but, you know, was that, um, was that taking you away from your kind of passion of writing? Sure it did, yeah. I mean, that's why I deliberately when I left, I signed on with the Sunday Times and Marie Claire to be a contributing editor on the proviso that I just wrote. My job was to land big cover stories with big stars I would set them up. I would work with the, 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 the art desk and the, the pitch desk to create the shoots. So I had a creative input, worked with the best photographers in the world, but I wanted to get back to writing. However, no, it wasn't a disappointment in the job. That was the job. I knew what the job of an editor was. You don't just get to sit there and play with words. You know, you're running a business. You're managing a budget. You're managing a team. You're looking after staff. Um, it taught me the things that I didn't enjoy doing that I didn't want to do again. And, I didn't want to be an editor after that. I'd edited my favourite magazine in the world. No ambition to be editor of another magazine, for example. I just, I didn't, I, I just certainly hadn't occurred to me to go into telly. And then this woman appeared, you know, when I was at Smash Hits, it was a huge year for pop music. So I was always having to be wheeled out to, to be interviewed on news and t news at 10. And I had to do that 
as a way of raising awareness of our brand. That was also part of my job. So it wouldn't, I couldn't go, oh, I don't want to do news at 10. I had to do it. It was my job. Um, and that made me very visible, I suppose. So I kept getting offered TV shows. And it was this one woman that came along and presented this business case that I thought, maybe she's onto something. Maybe it's time for me to just keep trying new things. And I can still be a writer and a presenter. There's not many people that are doing it, but I'm, I'm going to give it a try. So I did. And and, and did you uh, did you still enjoy writing more than presenting? Or, or? I enjoy both, still do. Now I write documentaries that I present for Radio 2. I write my podcast every week. Um, I research it every week. Everything I do, even when I was hosting The X Factor, is done through a journalistic lens. I'm a storyteller. So I could be interview, you know, introducing Andy on The X Factor. Well, Andy's got a story. Why should you care about him as an audience member? What's... You know, it's, it's down to me. And Andy's not a broadcaster. It's not t- for him to succinctly land who he is. So, you know, we'd have a VT on Andy, but then it was my job to, where the edit producers would decide what's Andy's story. How do we best tell it? But beyond that, I had to keep telling that story week in, week out. So even a talent show for me, I, I approached as a journalist. And I mean, I, so I was going to say, um, obviously having the different skills, you know, gave you gave you more employment opportunities and makes you more malleable. I was going to say, do you, do you think that um, being, being a journalist helps you as a presenter, being a presenter helps you as a journalist? Totally. But, but I mean, you've, you kind of took, I think, took the I question think out of my For me, mouth, it really. does. But, that's, but equally, if you're sat here watching this, you think, I want to be a presenter, but oh, I'm not a journalist. Go for it. Just try. There's no rules. And even if there are rules, write new rules, you know. I mean, the world has changed. My working world has changed irrevocably since I started out as a 20-year-old. I edited Smash Hits without an email. You know, I had a mobile phone that had an aerial that you used to have to pull up and had a strap. Um, the internet wasn't, it, whilst it was in existence, it wasn't being used in offices. Um, and now look at where we are. Now I present a podcast. You know, podcast didn't exist when I came into the working world. I present digital shows that get bigger audiences than shows I would have presented on traditional telly. The world has changed. You've just got to keep adapting. And I think if you're interested in all of those technologies and all of those different ways of of working, you'll stay relevant. And fundamentally, what I do is, is no different to what I did when I started out nearly 25 years ago. I tell stories. Yeah. That hasn't changed. But how they're told, where they're told, you know, the idea that you could put a show out and somebody would sit and watch it in the palm of their hand would have felt ridiculous in 1997. Well, I mean, unbelievably, probably it still didn't feel much less ridiculous five, year, five years ago. I Correct, think, yeah. You know, the, the, the speed of... You know, but isn't it exciting? I mean, I, I get... You know, I, I know there's a lot of people, certainly in telly, that that sort of scratch their heads and go, oh, God, you know, this is, you know, they, what they see is the problems. I see the potential. I see the possibilities. And I think because I was a music journalist for so long and I specialised in music and I worked on music shows, be they X Factor or Top of the Pops, I'd seen what digital could do to an industry with the music industry. I think digital ravaged that as an industry and then re- forced it to reinvent itself to put it to where it is now, where streaming works, you know, and there are income revenues and there's still tweaking to be done. But the music industry has found a way to make technologies work with them, not against them. I think telly's about to go through that. And the 
the ascent of Netflix and Amazon and Apple and the streaming platforms combined with the fact that my son and your daughter don't watch normal telly in the way that we did when we were growing up, the world's changing. Now, you can sit there and go, oh, I don't understand change, or you can be part of the change that you want yeah. to see. I mean, for me, for me, the excitement and and the the, you know, the benefit and the opportunity is is in the speed of deliverability that, you know, that, that, that everything's Speed's changed. amazing now, though. I mean, it's almost too fast in some ways. We were, we're talking, talking just, just before we started filming about about your podcast and I think, I think how, how it had gone from, you know, gone from idea to pitch to, to, to record. No, this was, we, uh, the show I was talking about then was actually a show I did in lockdown called Up Close and Socially Distant. So um, when did we lock down? March. So in February, uh, my podcast I make with a company called Verizon who are fantastic. They own Yahoo, Huffington Post, AOL, big digital content creators. Um, but they're American owned and they, they, they went for lockdown way sooner than anyone else. So suddenly I had, you know, guys appearing in my house, building podcast studios in my living room and setting me up for what what we hadn't we didn't know was coming but we kind of knew was coming it hadn't been announced and suddenly all this year's work all the shows that I had lined up started to just fall out of the diary so I called um my guys at Verizon and I just said listen we're about to do something like if, if we lock down this is massive this is social history and we're living through it it's like a massive GCSE question from 10 years time and we're living through it we have to document it and all the news that's flooding out at the moment is reporting on what's happening. But what we're not seeing is like, yes, this is the worst of times, but I truly believe that the worst of times can bring out the best of people. So why don't we make a show that shines a light on the best of people in the worst of times? And that's what we did with Up Close and Socially Distance. And within, I think, I think we pitched it at the beginning of the week and we were shooting by the end of the week. And that's the beauty of digital is that it can adapt yeah. super quick and tell you can do the same, you know, rolling news and all of that stuff um but but with digital i think that's when it really finds its its moment and its pertinence and we were able to tell these great stories either in long form sort of three guests on every week they're all doing something for the greater good of others that was it i don't it doesn't matter what you're doing is it to serve somebody other than just yourself if it is i want to hear your story so the woman that came up with the eight o'clock clap right when we look back in the history books we'll talk about and people left their homes every Thursday at eight and they clapped well I wanted to know about this woman how she'd bought that idea and how it had taken off virally and we told those stories we told stories about incredible men and women that were making sure people got fed you know doctors and nurses on the front line dealing with COVID or dealing with other departments within the NHS that were also feeling the impact we told those stories and we did them all from my kitchen island and it worked and people we were able to raise awareness and really valuable funds at a time when people were really needing them. Um, so it was, it was a, it was a pleasure to be able to use, you know, some of what I've learned along the way, coupled with a group of like-minded people and, and an appetite to keep telling great stories to put that into play. And, you know, those, those videos live on, they're out there on the internet now, and we will look back on those times. And I'm really proud of that work. Um, because I did also didn't want to be going, oh, adding to the woe of the nation, which was, we're in the shit. We yeah. know we're in the shit. You only have to put the news on to know how deeply immersed in it we are. But look at all the, look at the good stuff that's coming out of this as well. Not to say that that offsets any of the bad. It's just, let's just balance it. I think it needed balance. 
So I guess you know, you've you've always been a, a a creator and a builder, you know, in, in, yeah. your, in your journalistic career, presenting. And uh, but w when when did that transfer over to uh, over to business and uh, you know creating businesses, business ideas? Well, um, so now I produce jewellery and accessories, and I have a brand uh, line, and we sell through to Next. Was it was that was that your first business? No, no. So that's what I'm doing on a business level at the moment. My first business and the only business I ever tried to do was I launched a digital platform that fused content with online shopping. And every time you shopped with us, we hosted about six, 650 brands. Um, you got cash back on every purchase. So cash back, I think, is a really smart shopping mechanism. And it felt like it was only ever being marketed um, as, a, as, a, as an extremely you know, it's smart money-saving um, opportunity, but it was never marketed to the masses. It was it was deliberately targeted to those that, that the owners of those businesses possibly thought uh, were, were serving it to people that needed to save the money. Everybody wants to save money. So I wanted to take that out to a more aspirational female-led market, wrap it in content and educate people about, do you know what, one extra click in your journey and you could save money on every purchase you make as an online shopper. Um, so we launched TBC in 2016. And I learned loads. The business closed, not through anything that we did as a, as I a management see you team. Because you kill it, you take every question. You Sorry. Can, you take every question. And I answer it. Listen, you're an investor. We were promised a tranche of investment and it didn't arrive. As a director of that, that business, as the sole director of that business, if I can't pay my bills as they fall due and I carry on trading, I can't do that. That's, that's a breach of my code of conduct as, sure. as, as a director of a business and asking people to carry on working. If I didn't think I could, I, I had the confidence in, in the person that was delivering that money to get it there on time, to pay their salaries. So I had to make. I mean, a heartbreaking decision. We'd spent years building this business up. It was working. And then it didn't. With, you know, five years work, two years pre-launch, three years in the market. Everything fell apart in five days, it felt. And obviously, I mean, I know we talk about you know learning experiences, but I mean, I mean that that, that was obviously a you know as bad a bigger blow as you can possibly get Massive. in business. I mean, did, did did that? And not just for me, for everybody that was in it, from the investors um, right down to the team that worked you know, that came in early, left late. Um, you know, we were trying to do something that was really progressive and it, and it worked. And I'm really proud of what we, what we did and what we achieved. I'm so sad that it ended the way that it did. Um, but the learnings that I, I took from it continue to inform the work that I do to this day. And, I mean, did, did it did it scar you at the time in, mm. in, in terms of wanting to go back into business or, or, or do, yeah. doing things at that level? Yeah. I'm not back in business. I don't run a business. I oh, have you, you don't consider it like that with your jewellery? No, I'm, I'm, I'm a partner in the business, but it was an existing business. They asked me to come in. They asked me to come in and, and initially just be the face of the brand. And I said, no, thank you. Um, I would only be interested in working with you if I could design and it would be authentically pieces that I love and wear and jewelry yeah. i'm wearing today is stuff that and, i've designed and, myself and do you but do you think you wouldn't go back to running one yourself yeah, i mean which surprises me as, as someone who's you know he's clearly so confident and i don't know learning you know learning from your mistakes and you know networked and pragmatic and i i, I, thought I you'd still have... do all of that you know and i would still encourage anybody to start a business if you've got the energy and the appetite to do it um 
Well, I guess that's, uh, yeah. If, it, if it's if it's not for if it's not for you anyway, yeah, and if it's not where your strengths are, and you've you, you've got so many strengths no. elsewhere, you've got uh, whether you've created a business or or you you've built opportunities for yourself, you, you're just coming at it from a different. Well, angle, also I when I started the business, it was with two other people. One left before launch, the other left not long after launch. Um, and I ended up holding this baby and I was only ever meant to be there to do the content side of the business. And I very quickly had to learn out and hire in people who had expertise in all of the other areas. Um, so I don't think I, you know, I didn't launch that business thinking I'm going to run this thing on my own. It was always as a part of a team and, and that team for, for um, multiple reasons didn't end up staying together. Um, would I want to go back and run another business again? No. You know, I, the moment that that finished, I launched my podcast and I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to do the stuff I know I can do for now. And I'm loving that. I'm a single mum. I never had childcare. So actually, I think, I think the things that suffered most when I ran a business were my abilities to be present in any moment with my son because I was always worried. I used to dread the end of the month because it was like, have we got enough in? Is the cash flow there for, for us to pay everybody? I was, you know, you're always the last person to get paid in your own business. That's a given. Um, so actually, you know, it, it, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have got the appetite to go back to that. If I, I'm just want to be really honest with you yeah, no, no. and I want to be the mum that I want to be for three years, I felt like I was always going, uh-huh. Yeah. No, I'll be there to help you in just a second with that. One sec, one sec. What send what felt like a really urgent email that so could have waited. And in the grand scheme of life was never that important. Um, but once I committed to, to, to this business, I gave him my all because that's what I do with everything. Um, and I loved what I learned. And I love, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the business. So now I run a podcast and a jewelry line and I have people that worked with me on, on my, on TBC and working with me on that. So I've taken great people with me on the next stage of my journey. Um, and, I, I continue to collaborate, but I don't. I don't think I ever want to be solely responsible um, for a business in the same way. And where, where did uh, where did becoming a therapist come from? Uh, I think therapy saved my life. As, as a child, I was an I was a, an anorexic and a bulimic, and whilst I never had therapy, I used to go and sit with a GP every week and talk to her, and that was a talking therapy before we even knew what talking therapies mm. necessarily were, and. And then when I became a single parent, I went back into therapy. I thought, I thought I need, I need some help. I need some help to understand my head and my feelings. And it just felt like everything was just going round and round in my mind, like a washing machine and nothing was coming out clean and nothing made sense. I needed somebody to guide me through that. And it, it was transformative. And there was, you know, I didn't pop a pill. I didn't, you know, all I did was rock up every week and just put it all out there and then come out with all this food for thought. And I really worked myself out. And when my son was old enough to go to school a couple of years later, I thought, I I've, I need to learn again. I need to. And I never did university. Um, have I got it in me to learn a whole new skill set? And also working in our business where everything is so fast and furious and transformative in terms of technologies. Maybe I do need to have a plan B. I'm financially responsible for a, a child. I have to be able to keep earning. Um, and I thought therapy would be, you know, qualifying as a counsellor would would tick all of those boxes for me. It would give me a career fallback. It's something I'm fascinated by. And it's something that, that's given me so much. So I signed up. How long have you been qualified now? 
six years. And 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 do you, and do you do you take on clients? Have you got? People? No, I don't practice with clients because I, I'm, I'm qualified to. Um, uh, but I want to study more. And when that the, the the next level of study means I have to give up a lot of my work, and I'm not ready to do that yet. But but, but I will do. But I think I use it a lot in my podcast and my interviewing, and you become a skilled listener. And and do you think? I mean, do you think ultimately that 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 would become a career for you at some point, or is why you, not? You just like it as a as a background skill. And I loved learning. It taught me loads. Well, I'll tell you what it did. I mean, it taught me about how to help and listen, um, which is massively valuable. I think as a profession, it's it's it's, it's you know, I work in a business where you, there is a premium put on youth. As a counsellor, the older you are, the more wisdom you acquire. I think there's there's something really beautiful about that. Um, would would I go back to it? I hope so. I really hope so. I don't see why not. You know, and, and what it taught me was a how to to be open to others. It taught me loads about myself. When you study therapy, you have to go into therapy. So, whilst I'd been in therapy before, when I was in crises in my life or at crossroads in my life, I'd never been to counselling or sought therapy um, when everything was okay. And suddenly I spent two years in therapy when everything was okay. And that's when you do your best work because you you dive deep. It's like trying to find a pearl every time you go down to bring up, to present in the session so that you're not just there ticking off the hours. I thought, if I'm going to do this, let's let's do some really deep work. Let's look at the fundamental structure. Who am I? What's my belief systems? How, is my moral compass in need of adjustment? Um, do I like who I am? Like, who am I? I'm a mum. I'm a single parent. The, you know, I'm a, I'm a boss. I'm a, what, what am I? Like, who, take all those titles away. Who am I? And that's what I learned. And has it made you make any fundamental changes in your, in your health, your well-being, your rituals, your attitude? Yeah, loads. Yeah. And it's not so much about what you do. It's how you think. I like myself now. Give myself a break. I'd stop sh- like squirming at the things that went wrong and embrace them. I talk about them. I share them because it's nothing to be ashamed of. And it felt so shameful for so long. You know, I was fired for, you know, I, I was let go from the X Factor, fired, whatever you want to call it. It was all over every newspaper. It was the biggest show in the country. It, there was a burning shame that I felt at the time of that. Nothing to be ashamed of. Done nothing wrong. I'd done nothing wrong. I lost a job, you know, and I had to be, I had to own that so that the next time somebody came up to me and for years people would come up to me and, and kind of put their head to one side, like in sympathy. You're okay, which all came from a great place, but it felt like I was being pitied, which pushes your sense of self-esteem lower and lower, and lower until you have to be able to say, I'm fine, how are you? And own it, control that narrative you know, one guy decided I wasn't right for the job. Okay, no biggie. Like, there's worse things that happen in your life. Uh, it's how you how you enable those things to define you. And I think the one thing I learned, having been, I, I am a workaholic. I love work. Um, I've had to, to whilst enabling myself to still love work with passion and always looking for, you know, oh, let's do this, let's do that. Do you love it now as much as you did 25, 27 years? Absolutely I do. But what I've learned 
to do. And it's a constant progress, it, like work in progress, is not be defined by my work. And that, it probably sounds like they're both the same. Like, how can you be one without the other? How can you be a workaholic and not be defined by work? I know as a, who I am as a person now. I like who I am as a person. I think I'm a pretty good friend. I think I'm a pretty good mum. I'd hang out with me. And then there's my work. And I work hammer and tong at it. But for a long time, I didn't tick those boxes. I didn't know who I was. Didn't particularly like who I was. I didn't know if I would hang out with me. I, I, all, all I focused on was the negatives. Oh, you're really annoying. You're really chatty. Oh, you're a gobshite. Oh, you're overly opinionated. Now I just go, I am a really overly opinionated gobshite, but I've got a nice heart and I'm all right, you know, and I've got enough friends that, that have kind of validated that really. And my friends are really important. So I've learned that I can be a workaholic who's not defined by my work. And that's good. That's a healthier place to be. I feel like I've been through some sort of gym process with it. And now it's all in a good, healthy place. And I did that before as an anorexic. You know, I had to work out who am I away from this illness? You know, to, to, to suffer a mental illness at that age without the understanding and education that sits around it now is that was hard. I had a brilliant mum who got it. I had a dad that just scratched his head going, why can't you just eat? Just eat. You know, and I understood that too. There was no, nothing wrong in his response. Um, so I think I had my first experience of having to learn to re-identify myself and be okay with that and hating myself, you know, and, and, and an eating disorder is a form of self-loathing. It's also a form of control. I'm a control freak. He's a workaholic. You know, all of these things are negatives if you allow them to be. I don't see the negative in being a workaholic. I don't ask anybody else to work the hours that I do. I just just allow I just I allow myself to do it. But also, like you said earlier, you know, you, you've never felt like you've worked because 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 you've loved everything. There is that as so well. Much. Yeah, there is that as well. There yeah. is that as well. So yeah, but you know what? We could sit here in a year's time, Matt, and I'd give you a different set of answers because I'll have learned something in those twelve months, and. That I'm that that's the one thing I know I will do. I'll try in the next twelve months, whatever this crazy wonky world throws at us, I'll be sat here in a year's time and I will have done something new and different because I refuse to stop doing that. And if I get it wrong, I'll learn something from it. And I guess short of any impositions from you know from Corona and lockdown, where where, where is the next twelve months, twenty four months likely to take you? Who bloody knows? And that's the other thing I've learned: stop planning because all the stuff that's happened was never in the plan. The only plan I had was to be a journalist. The telly, the media career, designing jewellery, running a business, all of that stuff found me through whatever opportunities, conversations, network. So that's the other thing I've learned to do, stop planning because life happens whilst you're busy making plans. You just mentioned just just then actually that all of these things have happened through through you know ABC and 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 your network and it's something that I, I wanted to talk about earlier but never got to touch on. I mean, obviously you are a phenomenally networked person, uh, <laughs> you know, from uh, you know I guess you know, from a very very early age. Uh, I mean, w- w- was that something you were making a conscious effort from so early? I'm a journalist, or is it? But is it is it now? I mean, no, I- not at all. It never has been. Never will be. So we call it network. You call it network. I call it just like. I got into this business because I'm interested in people. So how can you be interested in people and not collect them as you go through life? Like definitely filter, definitely only keep the good ones, you know, and and maybe indulge a couple of the bad ones just for the sake of a good anecdote, if nothing else. (laughs) Um, But I don't think of it as network. Like 
you know, you've had Tamsin Athwaite on the show. So I get a call from your PR Mark, who I work with on my show in lockdown, who was doing some great stuff. I liked him. He called up and said, would you come on Matt's show? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. It's, it's talking about all the stuff that we've sat here and discussed. And then he's like, well, you know, and if you could think of anybody else that you think might be in it. Yeah, definitely. Tam, you know, I really, you know, she's one of my best friends. But I think she's a fascinating conversation. I hope you learn something from her. Yep, now, if that's right. what you call network, that's network, right? But actually, that's just me connecting with people that I like, that are doing things that I like, and I'm putting them all together. No benefit to me in that. Just a good thing to do. But, and again, that's what, you know, what we were talking about, you know, well, both off camera and, and on camera that, you know, you, you, you were always putting your hand up, uh, you know, for, for opportunities, happy, to, happy to work for free, happy to offer your services. And, and it's, you know, it's very, you know, very much the, men the mentality I, I use for things. I was telling you again before we started about my, my t-shirts, you know, which I, yeah. again, I, 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 I wear and I've, you know, done quite a few podcasts about, we say 80% of what I do, I do for free. And then the other 20% I get fucking well paid for. And, <laughs> and, and I think that's, you know, for, for me, that mentality or that strategy is, is just so important because because if on every individual thing you do, you're stopping to try and find an angle, to try and find a way to get paid, you know, to, to wonder what am I getting out of this if I'm doing that for you, uh, then, then... then I don't see, I don't think like that. No, no, no. Yeah, no, that, no, that bartering completely. system, if, well, if I do that for you, what are you going to do for me? I don't know. Maybe there's a bit of a hippie in me that just thinks but, 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 but good, I, good deeds turn to another good deed and I think find you know, your back. I, and the, I mean, the way I kind of operate is obviously you know, we all have our core business. You know, we need paying for you know we need paying for our core business. But then uh, effectively outside of that, you know, I I I look to to have fun, to meet new people, mm. to, to you know to to do to do, to do nice things. And, and and I guess you know scratch other people's backs because I will enjoy doing it and you know maybe one day I'll get mine scratched back but but if, if I don't if I don't I don't I'm certainly not going to ask for it to be scratched before, you know before I scratch yours and and I, I think ultimately whilst it sounds converse to getting paid for things you know ultimately so it's a much more fruitful enjoyable yeah. way of uh, of doing things. Well, you can't just think about yourself as in life. I think that we have to think about ourselves existing in an ecosystem. Of, of other people and and you know if for example that first editor who I kind of gave the hearts you know heart on the table story to about if I don't get a job at the end of this I've got to move back home and I've been working as a receptionist in a sexually transmitted disease clinic to keep my bills paid <laughs> like, I will do anything but please god give me a job please get me but, away from chlamydia yeah yeah please honestly <laughs> I'm up to here with syphilis um if she hadn't given me a break, right? There's nothing. There was no gain in it for her. She wasn't advertising that position. She created that position for me. She did something like that. That, that was seismic for me. It changed the course of my life. And there was nothing in it for her apart from she got another annoying kid in the office putting her hands up every five minutes. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. I mean, I must have got right on her nerves. But she did that for me. So. From the moment she did that, I've never, I've, I've always been so conscious of keeping my ladders down. She elevated me. My job is to keep my ladders down. So every job that I've gone into, I've tried to, I've tried to get to know everybody and then, you know, try and be helpful and to bring other people along with you. You know, success is, is all good and well, but what's the point of standing at the top of a mountain on your own? It's bloody lonely. 
Success for me is being halfway up a mountain with a load of like-minded, brilliant people going, what a journey we're on. So this was me three weeks ago. I was ha- halfway up Kilimanjaro with, th- with this guy and a couple of others. And, th- oh, yeah. and, th- and then I got to the top. Did you? Yeah. And did you go together or alone to the top? <laughs> we... we, we... <laughs> We went together, uh, but I mean, ultimately, on 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 that last bit, because it, I mean, it was six, it was six days up, and it was supposed to be two days down, and we did it in a day. Um, Blimey! On, on, on that, your bum? Pun? Oh, we we just wanted by then we just wanted out. Get me well, up. well, I I certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, on the on the last bit of the climb, which was like a six hour, it was supposed to be six hours. Uh, we were together but apart and so far so there's only six of us it's like me Callum uh, another friend of mine who actually met, met on this podcast and, and and a couple of clients of his and we um, I mean yeah you were, you were breaking up you were just probably only a couple of hundred yards between us all but that couple of hundred yards on a mountain is almost like you know, like like a, a yeah, couple. But you couple were miles still together road, in but, spirit. Uh, you were together. Oh yeah, so I was. Yeah, <laughs> metaphorically I really, together. There was a euphemism here. I was. Yeah. I, was t- I was telling you practically what happened on the mountain. No, well, I'm very impressed yeah. that you managed to, to do Kilimanjaro because you know just the idea of the name Kilimanjaro. Yeah. You know, think about it. Well, Callum did it on four days' notice. Well uh, done, Callum. And props. And I bought my trainers on the morning of on, just before I went to the airport. He so. says you need to train it exactly. before you throw yourself <laughs> up a mountain, let alone down. But yeah, you know, I think when you, you network is really important, and so is ambition. And those are two words that I think a lot of people have very negative connotations about. And it goes back again to changing the language around failures or anti-aging or whatever it may be. Uh, uh, you know, everything is better when it's enjoyed together. And I really, and I've learned that. And I've never been a solo act. I've always been part of a brilliant team, no matter what I'm doing. And and that continues to be the case. And I look forward to creating new teams and having new experiences. I'm hungry to learn and do more. I'm 47, and I feel like I've only just got started. And at the same time, I feel exhausted. <laughs> but I won't stop um, because the world's a fascinating place to be operating in, and. I really do believe that now more than ever, we can all be a part of the change that we would like to see. So for me, you know, bringing people along with you, you know, by even just by sitting in that chair as an editor at Smash Hits at 21, as the first woman, I made that an okay place to be for young people and for women. Because somebody, you know, that, that was a door I kicked open. Well, after that, lots of women passed through that door and went on to bigger and better things. And... I'm still in contact with people from those days and we've all kind of shared our lives and experiences in different ways. And sometimes years can pass before you see them again, but you take those people with you in those experiences and you keep having new experiences and there's no job for life anymore. There's not, you know, we have to raise the next generation to believe that a portfolio career is, 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 is a given for everybody. Mm -hmm. You don't just, unless you're a doctor or a scientist, you don't, what you put on your passport at, at 21 is probably not going to be the same when you're 55, for example, unless you are in one of those professions where you work in law, medicine, science, or I don't know, law enforcement. But for, for the likes of me, for the creatives out there, I think you've got to be open to doing a, a multitude of, of things in order to keep yourself inspired, paid. Being paid is really important as well and knowing your value. Hundred percent, and no one's done it better than you. Well, I so. don't know. <laughs> you know, listen. I've, I, you know, there's been a lot of painful lessons along the way, and some people might call them failures, and they were definitely painful, but they were definitely lessons. 
And it's only now as I sit back and I look back on those and what they've taught me and the resilience that they've wrapped around me um, that I understand the value in them. Well, thanks a lot for being here today. Pleasure. Thanks, thanks a lot for uh, te teaching me and my I've audience. I've taught you nothing. Some of, some of the lessons. You've taught me plenty. I what always, have I taught you? I always enjoy these conversations. What, what do you take from these conversations? I'm intrigued, Matt. <sighs> I mean, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of the time it's it's interesting to just uh, to hear um Similar strat, or let's say the same strategies uh, that I I apply or I have, but that other people maybe have under a different guise or or, or a different slant from their careers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like to uh, you see the parallels between you know kind of completely different businesses because I think ultimately in life or in business there's there's very few fundamentals in anything, and and you know and they apply to to media. Like they do to business, to business yeah. like they like they do to sports, do. Uh, and you know, I, and I sports guess sports a great one to analogise yeah. actually, yeah. And I guess I, I you know, I just I, I love you know hearing different people's stories, different people's you know take takes on success, and and when I get to do these podcasts, I get to do it with you know uh, people who failed lots, people who are still on the journey, young people, old people, men, women, mm -hmm. and and people from all kind of walks of life. So it's just a uh, you know I, I, I guess I guess it's a uh, it's a, a a pleasure to get to have these conversations and and. And, uh, and, and an honour to share them with an audience, if you like. Mm. So. Can I ask you a question? Go for it. What do you qualify as success now? Uh, so I, I will always I always say that that, su that success is what is what you make it. I would I would say that you are You need to set out what looks like success for you, and then if you achieve it. Then you're successful. If you don't, you don't. And, and I think success as a question is always asked normally in terms of finances. Yeah, and people, are, you know, are, are you are you successful? And and you know, from a monetary perspective, you could say that guy's super successful. He's 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 just made a million pounds. Well, you know, if he'd set out to be you know to make a billion pounds, then actually he's not successful because <laughs> because he's not achieved what he wants to achieve. Whereas on the other side, you know, maybe someone's life goal is is to be the best mother, the best wife, uh, and the best friend that someone can ask for and if they tick all those boxes they're but that's utterly skint they are still super successful and mm. i think you know that the, there's there's no right answer it's, it's it's whatever's right for you totally yeah but yeah thanks a lot for being here pleasure thanks, uh, thanks for uh you know thanks for keeping me on my toes uh, <laughs> answering all the, the questions yeah, before the, you'd the, ask the, them sorry <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't need to be here no no he's been fantastic occupational hazards <laughs> and guys i hope you've enjoyed listening to kate as much as i've enjoyed talking to her if you like it press like if you're watching on youtube make sure you subscribe if you don't already and if you've been listening to the video version or rather if you've been watching the video version we're on itunes we're on spotify we're on all the other places that you can consume your podcasts so make sure you keep coming back for lots of more guests and inspiring characters like kate and i'll see you again in a future episode thank thanks, you thanks matt Thank you for listening to The Matt Haycock Show. For more Matt, check out his YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Matt Haycocks. Or go stalk him on Instagram and Twitter, The Matt Haycocks. And we'll see you soon.